chapter 17 as we start a new series here in the life on the life of Elijah. And so if you would track with me first Kings chapter 17. We're actually going to start in a little bit chapter 16, but we'll move on there. And as Kevin mentioned, uh, what an exciting time at Waukee Community Church. There's just Take so many great step. things Be going careful. on it's right now. And it's so exciting to see how God is working and pulling things Power. together. Uh, just like as Kevin, I don't know if Kevin mentioned this or not, but our timeline is to close on that facility on June 1st. And so our elders, along with Peter, are working really hard to get all the details pulled together so we get all the legal stuff done and close on the facility on June 1st. And then uh, construction will start somewhere in the middle or end of June. And those are our plans. We're hoping to be in there by September. So please look at your calendars this summer and just pay attention because there are going to be opportunities. We have things that we can do over there that help us reduce costs. And there are going to be some work days that we set out. And, uh, and so just keep an eye on. We don't know until construction gets started exactly the timetable for those. But keep an eye on those. And also, I wanted to let you know at the uh, congregational meeting last week, uh, we also announced that we have hired two part-time employees, and one of those is Amy Flinkman. Is Amy? She's at a harmonica retreat. That's me. What? Her husband Jerry. I just learned to play harmonica, so we might have a harmonica. Interesting. Who knows? Uh, but then okay. uh, also, uh, Brenda Jackson in August will start as a part-time kids' life director. So we're super excited to have these details together. And we're continuing to have a conversation with our ministry relationship with Valley Church about having someone to come over and help us with worship a little bit. We're so, so grateful to Peter and the band. It's such a great job of leading worship today. And we look forward to just expanding and making that ministry better. So today we're in 1 Kings chapter 17. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit today about the making of a godly person. The making of a godly person. This is a four-week series on the life of Elijah. And this is good stuff. I know next week is Memorial Day weekend, and I know many of you will just uh, be gone. And that's a bummer if you're going to be gone next week. Because next week is First Kings 18. is my favorite story or account in the entire Bible. And so you really, instead of going to see your long-lost aunt, you should just ditch your long-lost aunt and come here to hear about First Kings chapter 18, my, my uh, favorite story in the entire Bible. But as we do that, I think thinking about today, starting with the making of a godly person, a man or woman, uh, I was reminded of a trip that I took years ago to the Middle East. Now, many of you know that we have been involved pretty heavily in the Middle East, in a, in a country there in the Middle East, and then uh, more recently in, in Western Africa, in Mauritania. But when I had a chance to go to this country in the Middle East, uh, it was an incredible experience teaching English, but more importantly, forming relationships with some uh, some local people from the Middle East there who did speak English, and presenting Christ to a Christless world. I mean, it's just really, it's truly a world that lives without Christ. And what an incredible experience. And I remember one day after we got done with the English lab and forming all these relationships, we invited some of the students and said, do you want to meet us in the old town, in the old city of, of this town, and we're going to go around and just hang out together. And what that afforded us is an opportunity to see if we could talk more about Christ with them. 
So we were walking around with these students in the old town, and you have to understand, this city is thousands of years old. Like, we can't even comprehend anything like this. And we're seeing, we walked into some buildings where the ceiling was literally, I had to duck to get into these houses because the ceilings were so low because they were so old. And we're walking through this city where the streets are narrow. You're not supposed to drive cars down the streets. They weren't designed for cars. There were no cars. They're all pedestrian streets. And I remember at one point wandering into the industrial section of the city. Now, you think of an industrial section, you think of something with big, huge factories and automation. And that was not the case at all. In the industrial section of the city, it was just a simple pedestrian street with little shops lined up where metal workers were working with the metal. It looked like something like this picture Doug here showed this one. It looked something like this. This guy's standing outside a shop, and you can see the guy on the inside of the shop there. He's working with metal, and he's forming it. And these men, are doing a craft the way it has been done for thousands of years. They're taking a piece of metal, heating up a little fire that they have there. They're heating the fire, heating the metal up in the fire, putting this hot metal between their bare feet, and then pounding it to mold it and shape it. You can see the next picture here, Doug, of this old, this old guy here who's been doing this probably his entire life, sitting on the ground, beating on a piece of heated metal, to mold it and shape it as it should be. And over time, these, these, through heat and pressure, these pieces of metal are molded and developed into something useful. These chunks of metal, without a purpose, have become, through the, through the guidance of one of these metal workers, have become a useful tool to further whatever given trade they're working with. And I was reminded as I was thinking about this man sitting in this little shop, beating on this piece of metal to form it. I was reminded that much like these pieces of metal are molded in the hands of the master, so godly men and women are molded in the hands of the master, God himself. Today, I want to talk, as we look at the life of Elijah, I want to talk about the simple concept that godly men and women are molded. They're molded. We're in a four-week series now on Elijah. We just finished up our, our long series on Abraham a few weeks back, and now we're moving into this four-week series on the life of Elijah. And Elijah is one of the most important figures in the entire Old Testament. He's certainly the most significant prophet of the divided kingdom era of Israel. And he's so important, Elijah is, to the Old Testament, that do you remember the, the account when Jesus went up on the mountain and was transfigured, where his glory was shown to his disciples? He was transfigured. I don't know if you remember that account, but who stood with him? It was Moses and Elijah. This is how significant the man Elijah was to the nation of Israel. He's a pillar of Israel and of our story here today and of the church. And in this four-week series, what we're going to do is we're going to learn from Elijah. And more importantly, we're going to learn how God shapes and uses the godly for his purposes. In the process, we're also going to learn some things about you. We're going to learn some things about me. And we're going to learn some things about God. And we're, God, we're going to see how God uses the godly to advance his kingdom. Now, truthfully, 
as you're going to see from Elijah, Elijah was not always a godly man. He didn't just pop out of the womb as, oh, look, here he is, a godly prophet. In fact, we know very little about Elijah's childhood, next to nothing. But what we see here in these accounts at the end of 1 King of his life, what we're going to see here is that we're going to see the process of Elijah being molded into a godly man. We get to witness this firsthand. Because as godly men and women are molded, what we're going to see is that they learn some things. And from the text today, I have five things that I want to talk about that godly men and women learn as we are molded into his image. Just like a metal worker molds a piece of metal, godly men and women are molded. And here's five things that I want to talk about today from the text. And the first thing is simply this. Godly men and women, as they're being molded, learn, one, that in the dark days, God still works. Now this actually doesn't come out of our text, but we have to look at the verses preceding 1 Kings 17 to have an understanding of what the world was like in Elijah's day. And so we're going to see this. In chapter 16, verse 29, we're introduced to the context of the life of Elijah. And the, and the context is this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Okay, so we need to set some context. I always try to place the account of where we're at in, in the account of the greater story of what God is doing. And so we are talking about a period of time that existed 1,100 years after Abraham. So we left the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis three weeks ago, and now we're fast-forwarding 1,100 years. And what you need to see is, as we talk about this is, first of all, you need to remember that after Abraham and after hundreds of years, Abraham's children, his descendants, ended up in Egypt. And this key figure, Moses, who I hope you've heard about, <laughs> Moses led the people out of Egypt up into the Promised Land. Joshua took over from Moses. He conquered the Promised Land of Israel. The Israelites moved into the Promised Land, set up shop. The <coughs> major thing that happens on the scene is King David, hundreds of years later, pulls all these raven tribes together and solidifies this nation. And his son Solomon then extends the wealth and the wealth of Israel vastly. He secures the borders and he builds, Solomon builds this beautiful temple. That's what he's doing. So we have this glorious period in Israel, in Israel's history, of a beautiful united kingdom that has lots of wealth and lots of influence in the world. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, comes on the And Rehoboam is pretty much, politically speaking, an absolute idiot. <laughs> he just makes some really bad choices. And he takes this nation that was united and powerful, and through his actions, takes it to the brink of civil war. And another guy by the name of Jeroboam takes the northern half of the country and says, we're out of here. We're out of this thing. And, and they split the nation in two. And so we have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom that exists for hundreds of years. And what's important to know is Ahab ministered in the northern half. And the reason it's important to understand this is Ahab's prophetic ministry was in a time where the northern kingdom never, ever had a godly king sitting on its throne. 
this is the context in which Elijah is ministering. So generations after the civil, the civil war, the nation is split, generations after this, we have king after king after king in the north not serving God, being evil. And suddenly, finally, we get to Ahab, Ahab's kingdom. And listen to what the text, how the text describes Ahab, because this is sober. Verse 30 of chapter 16. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. There has never been a worse king in the entire history of the northern kingdom than Ahab. I mean, this is a wicked dude. He just says, you know, Jeroboam, when he set up his kingdom, generations before this, one of the things Jeroboam did is he set up, he didn't want his people going down to the southern kingdom of Jerusalem to worship God, so he set up two golden calves in his kingdom and said, these are kind of like God, just go worship them. And what happened is that paved the way for Baal worship. Baal is this false god. Calves reminded people of the false god Baal. Eventually they just got all confused and started worshiping Baal, a false god. And Ahab took this confusion to the nth degree. He married Jezebel, who was from the Sidonians, where Baal worship was originated. He married her, pretty much let her run the kingdom, and turned the entire nation from worshiping the one true God to Baal. This is a wicked dude. This is a terrible dude. And he is bad news. And he set up these centers for Baal worship all over God's country. And what's really interesting is we can see right away how this impacted the people. Because the people started to look at God and say, you know what, God, the one true God, Yahweh, whatever, in fact, we learn in verse 34, and this is how dark and evil it is. Verse 34, in Ahab's time, Hillel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. Now, you might remember, centuries before Joshua, when he conquered the land, went around the city of Jericho a whole bunch of times, and the walls came down. Remember that story? Um, if you remember the VeggieTales version, there were grape slushies involved, which I'm pretty sure is not part of the real account. But, um, so, that's all my kids know. We watched VeggieTales growing up. They were sure that grape slushies were involved in talking to Jericho. Anyway, so, uh, when that happened, Jer um, Joshua, as the Lord's God, was supposed to curse the city, and he said, God said, don't ever rebuild the city. The cost will be great if you try. Don't ever do it. Well, these people think so little of God that Hiel of Bethel tries to rebuild it at great cost to him. These people are sticking their finger up at God and saying, God, we're done with you. We're, it's over. We don't care. These are dark times for the nation of Israel. People have turned their backs on God. They have turned their backs. The entire culture is abandoning God. Maybe you can relate to that. Because sometimes in today's world, it feels like the culture we are living in is fastly, quickly abandoning God. 
Maybe there are times where you just feel like you can relate to these dark days. Maybe it's personally, maybe it's in your family, so that terrible and horrible things are happening in your family. And maybe you feel like just, it's really dark. Or even just your personal life, things are really dark. And it's tempting to despair. But you must never fear because God is always with you. You see, the truth is, and what we are going to learn is that even in the darkest times, God is still working. God is still doing his kingdom work. It might seem like God has forgotten about you, but he hasn't. His hand is still working. And we're going to see this in Elijah. God is setting the scene here for one of the greatest prophets in the entire Old Testament. And God is setting the scene for Elijah, a man who is going to be molded into a powerful tool for God's kingdom. You see, as godly men and women are molded, they learn that even in the dark days, God is still working. There's a second thing that godly men and women learn as they are molded. They also learn to wait patiently. They learn to wait patiently. This is the second thing that Elijah needs to learn, to wait patiently. So we get introduced to Elijah very abruptly in chapter 17. Very abruptly. There's no birth story, there's no account, there's no story of him raising up. We just say, now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab. That's our introduction to Elijah. He was a Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead. <laughs> um, this is, an, this is no, there's no birth story, there's no bad story, here's Elijah. He's from this obscure place. Uh, scholars really don't know what a Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead is. They don't know where Tishbe is. Then we really have no record. He's from this obscure place. Elijah comes from nowhere. And he's called to appear before the most evil king that Israel has ever known. So look what happened. Ahab, Elijah said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Elijah goes in to the presence of this horrible king, and he announces the word of the Lord to Ahab. Now, this is a big moment. This guy from obscurity has now appeared before the king and made God's prophetic announcement to him. This is a big deal. Because Elijah has hit the big time. I mean, he has hit the prophets. Like, he should get a book deal out of this, right? He's going to make the rounds on the cable networks. Like, he has hit the big time. He's going to be famous. God is clearly ramping up his ministry. Elijah is ready to go. He's hit the big time. And so you know what God does with this prophet who's hit the big time? Who's going on and giving the prophetic word to King Ahab? Look at what the text says. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Okay, what's the next big thing? You know? Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. Wait a minute. I, I thought this was the big time. Like, I, I, wait, he's got to go hide in a ravine? I, I'm so confused. What's going on here? What's going on for Elijah? He goes from talking to the king to camping in obscurity in the care of ravine. This is a raw deal. What's going on? God is molding Elijah. And he's teaching him to wait patiently. You have to understand, in Elijah's day, this agrarian culture had no irrigation, 
and no, no crops that were designed really well. They didn't have the science that we have today, and so they were completely and utterly dependent upon the rain. With no rain, food and water became scarce. This was the command of the Lord to the evil King Ahab, and now Elijah has to wait it out. We learned from chapter 18 that this waiting, this drought, is about a three-year period. We learned this. You see, this is not glamorous waiting. For, for Elijah, who should have hit the big time now and been this famous prophet, he is not glamorously waiting. He's in the, in the Kareth ravine, hanging out. And look what the text says. It says, so he went, did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth ravine, east of Jordan. And he stayed there, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. It sounds okay. He's hanging out in the birds of right? Maybe you get this uh, this image in your head of Snow White, right? Like the, the birds are singing, and you know, they're bringing him an apple pie hanging from ropes, and you know, Emeril Lagasse has ripped up some new dish, and they're delivering it to him right in there, and, and he's getting a good, good life. The birds are feeding And this is not what's going on. The word for raven is not really a raven, and ravens are kind of gross as it is. These are scavenger birds. Where Elijah would have been hiding would have been in a, in a wadi, and it would have been basically a dry creek bed. So when the rains came, that's the only water. So there's barely any water as it is. It's deep. And in a drought season, it would be almost nothing there. In these wadis where the cave walls came up, these scavenger birds would pick things out and hide them in little spots and clefts in the rock. And this is probably what God has told Elijah to do. They're not going to dangle an apple pie from strings to you. You're going to climb into the rocks and pick out what the ravens hid there, what these scavenger birds. You know what they hid? They hid scraps, pieces of bread, you know, little dates. But one of the things that they hid was scraps of rotten meat and dead carcasses. This is the life that Elijah, who's hit the big time, has now entered into. A life of eating the leftovers from the animals that ate the leftovers. This is the life he's in. And God is molding Elijah. I, I sometimes wonder if for however period of time, we don't exactly know how long he was in this room. Well, what did he do with his time? I mean, he probably didn't even get cell phone service. So like, you know, no, no angry birds on the cell phone, right? Like, what did Elijah do? He waited patiently for the Lord. And God used this to mold him. He has a lot to learn about God in his waiting patiently. There is nothing, I think, more difficult than waiting patiently. My whole family understands that this is an issue for me, waiting patiently. I do like things instantly. But the worst is when I have to wait and I don't know why. <laughs> For instance, have you ever been on I-80 and been stopped in traffic? Right? You've experienced this, and this is the worst. Because we have no idea why. I'm listening to the radio. What's going on up there? I'm the guy that drives over on the edge to see how far I can see down the road. Like, what's going on here? I've got to know. And finally, after waiting for 45 minutes, I finally inch up. And, you know, I see the seven-car pile up, and I'm like, Oh, well, that kind of makes sense. Okay, right? Once I knew, it's easier. But waiting without knowing is hard. What Elijah is doing here is God is molding him, and he doesn't know why. 
It's a period of preparation, and this isn't just for Elijah. We learn a lot in Scripture that one of the ways God molds men and women, godly men and women, is by making them wait patiently. And they usually don't go off. Think about this with the life of Moses. Moses lived 120 years. The first 40 years he was in, in, lived as a prince in the land of Egypt. The second 40 years he went out into the wilderness. He didn't become leader of the nation of Israel until he was 80 years old. God prepared him for 80 years without explanation. Think of Jesus. Jesus went out into the wilderness for 40 days before his ministry. We see Jesus talk about this often in the Gospel of John. One of the phrases that's repeated <coughs> says, my time has not yet come. So Jesus demonstrated that godly men and women are molded because they learn to wait patiently. Elijah learned this in the character. And as godly men and women are molded, not only do they learn that in the dark days God still works, but they also learn to wait patiently. The third thing that I want to talk about today that godly men and women learn, the third thing I want to say is that they learn that God's hand is always moving. God's hand is always moving. This is closely tied with our first point, that in the dark days God is still working, but God's hand, even when we don't understand it, is always moving. This is the part where we need to admit, godly men and women, that our knowledge is limited, and this is really hard, because we're arrogant. We want to understand everything. So Benjamin and I, Ben said he was really excited to go see the Captain America Civil War movie, which we did. It was awesome. Uh, but, so here's the thing. I don't like to see a movie unless I remember everything about the things that led up to that movie. So I'm like, there have been 12 Marvel movies. Ben, we should watch all of them. <laughs> Except that was going to take like 28 hours or something like that. So we watched them over a period of two or three weeks. We didn't quite make it through all of them. But I wanted to completely understand everything that led up to this story. What's more, I would love to understand all the comic books too. I would like to read about all these, these Captain America comic books, and I'd like to fully understand the history of every character so I can fully appreciate the movie. And yet, I do have a job, and I am married, and I do have some kids, and uh, apparently, I can't do that. And it kind of irritates me. I'd like to know it all. I don't like it. I like to completely understand the ways of God, too. But God will be men and women understand our place. And we know that just because we don't understand something doesn't mean that God's not moving. In fact, God's hand is always moving. His hands are always moving. So, as the story here in, in, in 1 Kings 17 continues, we learn that Elijah's hanging out in the Kareth ravine and eventually this little tiny trickle of a stream of a dry creek bed completely dries up. So God tells Elijah to move on. God tells Elijah to go to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath is a city in the land of the Sidonians, just north of Israel. Now, you remember I said earlier, what, well, you remember what was in, came about in the land of the Sidonians? It's the heart of Baal worship. That's where this evil Baal worship came out of. And God says, go to Zarephath. I think that Elijah must be going, well, that's interesting. Because God has something planned for him. Now look at, we see already how God's hand has been moving while Elijah has been hanging out in the cave of the Look at verse 9. Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. 
I have commanded. Now, Elijah didn't know anything about this. He didn't know that God had been commanding something. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So Elijah went to Zarephath. Before Elijah knew anything about it, God's hand was moving, talking to this widow, preparing her for the arrival of Elijah. And up to this point, Elijah has no idea what God is doing. He's just hanging out. He doesn't know that God's working. And the truth is, we very rarely know what God is doing right now. We very rarely are aware of God's hand is moving in ways for us that we don't even know about. But his hand is always moving. We're just not always aware of it. See, part of our deal is we want to completely understand. We want to completely understand this whole thing. We want to completely understand everything about what God is doing. Because we think that if we understand what God is doing, we also want to know what he's going to do. And we think if we understand what he's going to do, if we could know somehow the future of what he's preparing now to do later, we think that would make us feel better. And it might. It might make us feel more confident in the future and how everything was going to work out. But I think there's something going on. Why do we want to know the future? There's something deeper going on here about just making us feel comfortable. What's going on deeper is that really we think that if we're able to see what God is going to do, then we'll be able to fix the things that we don't like. And in that way, we want to control the hand of God. You see, we want to know what God's hand is doing so we can change it if we don't like it. And do you know who's been trying to do that for millennia? Satan. He's been trying for millennia to thwart and move and control God's hand. He's been trying in vain. So the real question is, do we trust God's hand? Even though we don't know how it's moving. Well, the story continues. Elijah goes to Zarephath, and it is in the heart of, of Baal worship, but he's learned to trust the word of the Lord is reliable because he's learned that the hand of God is moving in ways that he doesn't understand, and this takes us up to our next point. See, while hanging out in the Kerith Ravine, he didn't know that God's hand was doing, but he trusted it, and now God's about to prove it. Look at verse 10 of the text. So he went down to Zarephath. When he came to the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I can have a drink? And as she was going to get it, he called, Oh, by the way, hey, bring me a little piece of bread, too. Now, Elijah's learned to trust that the hand of God is moving. And Elijah has learned, and this is the fourth thing you fourth thing you know is Elijah has learned to trust the hand of God by saying yes. He's learned to trust the hand of God by saying yes. So Elijah has learned this. He's learned this as he's being molded. He's learned to trust God. First of all, he did. God said, go talk to Ahab, the most evil king that's ever existed. Go appear before him. And Ahab said, okay, God, I trust you. Yes. God said, go live in a ravine. Eat bird scraps. And he said, okay, God, yes, I trust you. Now God says, go into the heart of enemy territory and ask a stranger for a drink and some food. And he says, oh, yes. But this story gets even better. Because more amazing to me than that 
is this widow learning how she said yes to God? Watch the, the widow's response. Clearly, somehow, God has prepared her for this moment. God said that I've already commanded her. This God who she doesn't know she's about to say yes to. Verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. I've got a handful of flour, a jar, a little oil, and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Like she is like, my life is over. I don't know this God. He came and told me to do this. This is your God, not my God. All I've got left is this little thing. I'm getting ready to die. And she says yes to God anyway. She doesn't even know God. But she says yes. She's willing to walk down a journey that's hard. Elijah says to her, the story's great. He says, don't worry. Don't afraid. Use the flour and the oil for me. Say yes to God. And here's the deal I'll make with you. Every time you go to the bin and open up the Tupperware container and take out the flour, go back the next time you'll be more in it. Every time you open up the jar and use a little oil, you use your last drop, it won't close. And so she says yes. She went away, verse 15, and did as Elijah told her. She's got no relationship with God. She's putting her last meal on the line, and she says yes to what God asks. And the flour and the oil didn't matter. God did what he promised. When God is molding us, we not only say yes to, we not only learn to say yes, but we also learn by saying yes. When God is molding us, we not only learn to say yes, but we learn by saying yes. This is how God molds us. This isn't a blind leap of faith. You guys have told me many times that phrase frustrates me. That you would argue nonsense about just closing our eyes, tapping our heels, and jumping. That's just nonsense. She is not doing this. But she is leaping in terms of trusting a God who she's heard and seen talking about. She has tangible evidence in front of her. And even though it's hard, she's learning by saying yes. And this is what godly men and learn, women learn as they are being molded. They learn to say yes to God, and they're molded when they sing by saying yes to God. The fifth thing that I want to tell you today that godly men and women learn as they're molded is to be persistent. Not only is, is God working in the dark days, and not only are we learning to be patient, not only are we learning that God's always moving, and not only are we learning to say yes to Him, but the fifth thing is we're learning, we're being molded, we learn to be persistent. So we're working on these three years now. Elijah's been in this throughout three years or so, and he's been living with this widow and her son, and God has been feeding them and taking care of them, and they're trusting Him. And in verse 17 we see, sometime later, so time had passed, somewhere in this three-year period of the drought, sometime later, tragedy strikes. And we learn from the text that the son of this widow dies. And you have to understand, this is all she's got. 
She's a widow. She doesn't have a husband to take care of her. In that culture, there's no Social Security. There's no Medicare. There's nothing to take that. There's no benefits. She doesn't have a husband to take care of her. She's already living and she's trusting and hoping that her son will grow up and get married and take care of her. And now her son has died. Her only son. And it's tragedy. And look what happens. She blames God. And she blames Elijah. And Elijah stretches out his body on top of the boy's body. We learn later, Elisha, Elijah's apprentice, does the same thing. And we learn in detail what this looks like. Is that he lays on top of him, eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, hands to hands. He's laying on top of him. And three times he does this and he prays. And life returns to him. Now some would ask in this text, this is horrible. Why would God let this happen? I mean, she'd said yes to God. Why would God let this happen? Or someone maybe asked, what did she do wrong? I mean, that's kind of what she asks in verse 18. In verse 18, when this happened, when her son dies, she says to Elijah, what do you have against me, God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? She's blaming God, and she's also looking at herself and saying, what did I do wrong? And some would ask that. But I'm asking a different question today. I'm asking a question, why three times? Like, why did Elijah have to lay face-to-face, hands-to-hand on the boy, and do it three times? Why was that one good enough? Like, what was wrong with the first two that they didn't work, and the third one did? Now, we can come up with a lot of symbolic references to three times. The symbolic references could be a pointing to the future about Jesus being in the grave for three days. It could be something like that. But I think there's a much more simple explanation. This is about more about Elijah than it is about the boy. Because Elijah is being molded as he's learning to be persistent. Elijah has learned a lot, and now he's learning to be persistent. See, the problem for you and I is that we need to learn this lesson, too. It's too easy to give up. There might be a time and a place to move on. That's true. There might be a time and a place to move to a different aspect of ministry. There might be a time and a place to move on from a relationship. But I'm just wondering, have we tried persistence? Godly men and women learn to be persistent. Where in your life are you persistent? One of the dirty words of the Christian life are spiritual disciplines. We hate those. We hate it. So we think it's like this drudgery of stuff that we have to do. But spiritual disciplines are simply the way of being persistent and learning to be godly. We think in relationships that, you know, we just are sick of this and we just give up in these relationships. But what if God is teaching us that we need to be where in your life do you need to be persistent? Where is God teaching you and molding you by persistence? You know, I think about uh, this campaign that we've, that God has led us through to create this space, this avenue to point people to Jesus. And I think of all that's happened in that, and I've here the told the story so many times of how for years and years we looked for a place and we didn't give up. We got frustrated. We said, God, what are you doing? I looked out the window at the dead tree and thought, God, what is going on? And yet God wants us to persistent. Our original leaders that, that started this church before I was 
They petitioned the school board to be able to use for every school. And the school board said, and they just, I'm told they didn't get it. And the school board said, no. Last I heard, it was three times that they went to the school board, and the student for that school prayed, and they went to the third time, and the school board said, yes. And think about how many years God blessed us with the use of that facility. Persistence. Now this is the point where I'm supposed to share probably a story about how Thomas Edison like tried two billion times to create the light bulb. I don't know how it was. It was a lot. And uh, I talked about persistence. And you guys have all heard this from motivational speakers and whatnot. But what I want you to understand today is that I'm not talking about persistence in the extraordinary. I'm not asking you to raise someone from the dead. I'm not saying you should be persistent in a super invention. I'm not even saying you should be persistent in an extraordinary Billy Graham kind of crusade where thousands of people come to Jesus. I'm just asking the simple question. Are you learning to be persistent in the ordinary? At following Jesus. The greatest failure of the American church is a lack of stick to itness. We just want instant everything. We want instant followers. We want instant results. We just want instant everything. And God wants us to catch the vision of repeatedly injecting ourselves persistently into others' lives to expand the influence of God's kingdom. So God wants followers who pray regularly because they learned that through persistence they can move the hand of God through prayer. God wants followers who strive to grow as disciples and are persistent. And when we're persistent, watch what happens. Look at all this. Elijah does this three times, prays, and what comes back to life. And look at the result, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. At the end of the day, Elijah, through his persistence, gives all the glory to God. And this is good. God is glorified when you and I are molded into his kingdom. So, these five points. As you are being molded as a godly man, remember. God is moving in the darkness. Remember, learn to wait patiently. Trust God's hand. Trust that to say yes to Him and be persistent. Because the good news for you and I is that the molding of God's hand in your life and my life is not a pop chart. <clears throat> Let me explain what I mean by that. We get the massive pack of pop charts. Um, it's like this huge box of pop tarts, strawberry cinnamon, two best flavors of pop tarts. Right? <laughs> and we put them in the cupboard, and, uh, and here's what I'm constantly amazed at. Pop tarts not hard. Actually, Brian Regan has a bit about pop tart instructions. If you've ever seen that, that's hilarious. But it's not hard. You take it, you open it, you put it in the toaster, and then you eat it. But here's what I've noticed about my family. It is too hard to put the Pop-Tart in the toaster. So they just eat it cold. They just 
eat them like that. It's too hard to put them in the toaster. It's the same thing with chicken nuggets. It's too hard to cook the chicken nuggets in the microwave. They eat frozen chicken nuggets. I'm not kidding you. It's disgusting. Right? Yeah, all, all my kids are mortified. Sorry. It's gross. Their mother taught it to me. I bet there's a comfy couch. Take it back. Would you hold us for that purpose? Would you be beacons from your glory? 